you know, the truth is we have imported that thread from the United States. They're calling themselves a freedom convoy. Uh, well, give me liberty or give, or give me death is not part of the Canadian tradition. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by Chris Sands. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Well, it's an eventful time in Canada-U.S. relations, quite eventful, actually. It used to be, Chris, you used to say back in the day you felt a little bit like those old advertisements, the Maytag repairman, uh, which the advertisement was uh, a lonely Maytag repairman. And the reason he was lonely is that Maytag washers were so good they never needed fixing. And I loved your analogy then. Um, I would say the Canada-U.S. relationship is uh, front and center right now, and not for great reasons, actually, um, and not great reasons related to democracy, related to our our relationship with each other and the world and all that. So we're really lucky uh, and fortunate here on Canusa Street to have a quite distinguished uh, thoughtful, knowledgeable leader with us, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, uh, the Honorable John Manley. And I know you'll introduce him properly, Chris, and I really look forward to having this conversation. Um, Mr. Manley is both on the Wilson Center Advisory Board and the Canadian American Business Council Advisory Board, so I guess he had no choice <laughs> but to join us. Uh, but we're thrilled to have him. And let me turn it over to you for a proper introduction, and then we'll get right into the conversation. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Scotty, and and welcome, uh, welcome, Mr. Manley. Um, jo- John Manley. For those of you who have not uh, have not seen him on TV uh, and encountered him in uh, around board tables around Canada, wa- is one of the most highly respected business leaders and political leaders I think that Canada's produced in the last. 50 years. Um, he served in the federal government in cabinet as deputy prime minister, as Scotty said, minister of foreign affairs, finance minister, and industry minister. And was no surprise that when he left uh, uh, government and public service, he was selected as the president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Actually, I think you led the rebranding uh, of that from the Council of Canadian Council of Chief Executives, which was C3E, was always a little tricky to say, but Business Council of Canada started a trend because many of the provinces then adopted the Business Council of uh, uh, Nomenclature. So it's excellent. Um, he's on a number of, of boards, including both of ours. He is a, uh, a an Ontarian, uh, a Canadian, and uh, someone who I, I would just add has long been a friend of the United States, and that uh, has been particularly appreciated during the days after 9-11, when he worked with governor, former governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Ridge, to try to guide the two countries on managing the border and uh, try to keep us safe as we dealt with a very uncertain threat from terrorism. And so just a tremendous um, honor to be with you, uh, Mr. Manley, and thanks so much for coming on. So let, let's start right there where you left it, Chris. So so Tom Ridge was not just the governor of Pennsylvania, but he was also the first secretary of Homeland Security, which was a newly formed uh, U.S. federal entity in the wake of 9-11. And I think that's a good place to start, John Manley, because in the way I think about it, the U.S.-Canada border hasn't been closed for business in a serious way uh, since 9-11. Uh, and there was a lot of fallout that came from that until the border blockades just in the last few days with the truckers uh, blocking not just the Ambassador Bridge, which gets a lot of attention because of the magnitude of commerce, but also crossings at Coote Sweetgrass in Montana and Alberta and other places right across the Canada-U.S. Uh, border. So maybe we could start there. As you look at current events, given your experience uh, over the years and in, in government and, and business, what do you, what, what goes through your mind? Uh, what has been going through your mind, um, about the border and about Canada U S relations generally? Well, that's a, that's a broad question. Maybe I'll, I'll go back to nine 11 just to get a bit of context because, um, in fact, officially, uh, the border never closed at nine 11. Uh, not much not much was happening there because nobody could really figure out who was in charge or what to do, uh, particularly on the U.S. side of the border. There were clearly, uh, clearly everybody's uh, risk antennae went up 
but nobody was making decisions. In fact, uh, at one point, Canadian uh, border uh, uh, personnel were helping clear some of the backlog going into the U.S. on behest of the U.S. authorities, just because nobody could manage it, and uh, and it was uh, interfering uh, with the supply chains of the day, which were uh, equally important to anything that we have now. The work on the border that I began with Tom Ridge, he was actually it was it was pre. Department of Homeland Security. He was named White House Advisor on Homeland Security just a few weeks after 9-11. We didn't have a similar structure in Canada. I was the foreign minister at the time. And uh, Prime Minister Chrétien said, well, um, I I think you you should probably be the person to to, uh, be the counterpart to Tom Ridge. Obviously, the Secretary of State uh, at the time, Colin Powell was also my my uh, counterpart. Um, strangely enough, I'd had previous dealings with Tom Ridge uh, when I was the industry minister. He and I launched a program for computers in schools that uh, we were doing in Canada, and he wanted to emulate it in uh, the state of Pennsylvania. And we signed a digital MOU together. Um, well before 9-11. It was one of the first international digital uh, uh, signings that ever occurred. Um, So when Tom was named by President Bush, um, it became my business to make him one of my best friends. And that wasn't actually that difficult. Uh, First of all, because he's really a fine uh, public servant and a very likable uh, human being, but secondly, because as governor of Pennsylvania, he well understood the importance of the Canada-U.S. border, and he had the backing of his boss. As he told me, uh, the president's instructions to him were, keep us safe, Tom, but don't mess up uh, commercial relationships in doing it. Um, and uh, he took that seriously. So it was it was it was only three months after 9-11 that we signed the Smart Smart Border Accord. And the whole principle of it was we have a a mutually um, important risk factor here in terrorism. We'd seen it on display on 9-11 in New York and Washington. Um, We demonstrated for the world how Canada and the U.S. can collaborate and cooperate together in times of, uh, of stress of that sort. Anyone who's seen the Broadway musical Come From Away will know what we lived in those days. And, and uh, that was uh, Come From Away as a great show, great music and a great vignette. But that was replayed in many, many different parts of Canada. Um, Three days on the Friday following 9-11, which was Tuesday, we had 100,000 people on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. You you couldn't buy a U.S. flag anywhere near the nation's capital because everybody was carrying one. Uh, And I think it was a moment in time when the, the deep and complex relationship commercial uh, personal uh, value-based was on full display for the world to see. So that's a kind of an indirect way of getting at y- your question. I-, I think fundamentally, not much of that has changed. Um, there have been issues that arise um, between us in the relationship, um, uh, I would have to say that uh, President Trump didn't make things easy for a number of years. Uh, he, I see he's throwing, casting aspersions at the Prime Minister of Canada from the sidelines today, which in ordinary times, I'd say that clearly indicates that he never wants to be president again, because otherwise he'd pull his punches. But of course, he's not got much of a filter on those things. So uh, I, w- I won't attribute that uh, belief. Uh, but uh, we've we also um, saw the difficulty working with them um, at the G7 summit in Charlevoix. 
we saw in the early stages of COVID, his attempt to ban uh, PPE exports to Canada. Um, and uh, I, I'd have to say that it, it, did, it did interfere with what was the normal, which I still believe is the case, the normal relationship. Well, so where are we today uh, with, you know, difficulties at, uh, at, at the border? Um, I'd say once again, uh, it's a passing phenomenon. The, 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 the Ambassador Bridge was blocked only for a couple of days as was Coots, Alberta. It's inconvenient. It's difficult. Bigger problem in winter for Canada than it is for the U.S. because a lot of our groceries were coming across that bridge. But lots of exports going the other way. Auto sector also, uh, also agri-food. Um, and what it does for users of uh, the border as importers or exporters is that it highlights a risk factor which we've always acknowledged, we've known was there. Um, uh, but I think uh, given, given the obstructions of the past uh, couple of weeks, it's going to need to be addressed by Canadian governments, federal, provincial and municipal, to ensure that we, uh, we, can, we can, A, reduce the risk that this could happen on a moment's notice again, uh, but secondly, uh, really um, address some of the concerns that are being um, felt, in, especially in, in the business community on both sides of the border, about how big a risk that actually could be. Thank you for that. And, and thank you for joining us, by the way. If I didn't say that at the beginning, we're very grateful to you. Let, I want to talk a little bit, uh, just to follow on um, what you just said, because I think I I think I agree with most of it, but let me let me challenge you on one thing. You know, thanks in, in a lot to your specifically your leadership when you were in government and then and then subsequently in the private sector. The two federal governments, Canada and the United States, really did coordinate better on on how to manage our common border for the last twenty something years. But but when and even when the pandemic happened. Um, in March of 2020, the decision was made in about 72 hours to close our border to, I'll call discretionary travel, right? But to keep it open to essential commerce um, or quote unquote essential commerce. Uh, that decision was made jointly. Um, it was quick. It was clear. And uh, it was done quite well, I think. But as Chris and I have talked about over the last year on this podcast um, and, and in other settings, um, after that, after the decision was made mutually to close the border uh, to discretionary travel, the decisions about everything else, how, you know, what the definition is of essential, when to reopen, under what circumstances, what does vaccine certification or testing certification have to look like, that has diverged, uh, the timing of these things. The two federal governments ha had their own decisions, um, and perhaps they, can, they did consult with each other. I won't say perhaps. They told each other what they were doing, but they didn't make the decisions together anymore. My hypothesis is we diverged after, after coordinating carefully uh, for the last 20 years, we diverged in the last two in a way that is unhelpful um, and made it harder when it came to this this blockade at the border, these blockades at the border, um, to really think about how you would how you would help each other. Um, so so I wonder wonder what you think about that and then I've got one more quick follow-up before I turn it over to Chris for the for the for the real questions. Let's be blunt about it. The approach to COVID on the two sides of the border has been different, partly as a result of government policy and objectives, and partly because of what the population is uh, wanting and is willing to, um, to accept. In the United States, there has been a tolerance for a higher per capita death rate from COVID than has been the case in Canada. I don't mean that as a value judgment. That's just the way it is. And so uh, the restrictions were uh, more uh, uh, rigorous in Canada. I'd also point out that in this, this COVID situation, I've often thought, you know, on the one hand, this is the biggest problem that we've really faced in, in a, you know, in, in peacetime 
in 100 years. Uh, I wish I was there to help solve it. On the other hand, this is the toughest problem we've had to deal with. I'm glad it's somebody else's responsibility. It's like solving a Rubik's Cube. Well, there are many different dimensions and, and twists to it. And, um, you know, the other harsh reality is that the Canadian healthcare system produced fewer beds per capita and fewer beds, particularly in intensive care units per capita, not just in the United States, than just about anybody, certainly in the in the in the G7, most of the and below most in the OECD. So the solving of the problem of overcrowding of hospitals became a dominant factor for Canadian governments and a more pervasive and uh, more of an emergency than it was for uh, most U.S. jurisdictions. Add to that the, you know, the the difference between Canadians and and Americans in some ways that stems back to our, our origins. You know, the United States is a revolutionary society. It overthrew the government. Um, many of its constating documents are reminders of uh, the principles the uh, originators of the United States um, applied in order to establish a new government in in the United States. I mean, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, the, the, the stunning um, mythology, if you like, but in Canada where we, we became a, a bicultural uh, place because of many English-speaking Americans that didn't want to overthrow the crown came north and they got along just fine. Um, Canada became an independent country when the British passed a law in their parliament. And I'm, you know, unlike the Revolutionary War, the British basically said, where do we sign? And off you go. <laughs> well, I mean, I, th- I think historically that's true. And that's interesting if I can just jump in. But I mean, you're you're in Ottawa today as we speak. And there are a bunch of protesters up there uh, that are that are calling for the prime minister to step down. And they've been there for weeks and they're not. So I'm, I'm, I don't know if that revolutionary zeal is 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 only historic and only American at this point. I think it's there's a lot of any anyway. Would love for you to talk about that a little bit, but also in that context, let me just ask this: If you were prime minister today, um, would you have evoked the Emergency Measures Act, and what do you think about that to deal with this phenomenon? Well, let, let me do. Let me remind you, though, that the Canadian acquiescence to government, deeply rooted in the belief that government is benign, goes back to our origins. And so the level of compliance in Canada has been much higher. Um, and even among the truckers, um, you know, depending on whose numbers you count on, the vast majority are, are fully vaccinated. Um, and, and by the way, the, the introduction of the rule that they must be fully vaccinated to do uh, international, i.e., Canada-U.S. trucking, it does mirror the U.S. rule. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I don't disagree with that. But you're sitting there under protest right now, right? Like you got a bunch of presumably truckers outside your window somewhere. They're not honking because they're not allowed to. But anyway, I'd be, I'd love for you to think about or talk to us about that. They are honking. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> the injunction only lasted so long, and I think they are a bit of an aberration from Canadian practice. And that's one reason they're here so long, because uh, nobody actually believed that that they would do this. You know, the truth is, we have imported that, that thread from the United States, they're calling themselves a freedom convoy. Uh, well, give me liberty or give, or give me death is not part of the Canadian tradition. We love to point out our constitution is based on a promise of peace, order and good government. And for the most part, Canadians are satisfied with two out of those three being the first two. So, uh, and I think that we we need to recognize the need that there is in all of our democracies for first and foremost, peace and order. 
It was one of the things that Tom Ridge had to address after 9-11. How do we ensure that people are secure? Uh, how do they go about their daily lives not being in fear? And so what the, what the protests have demonstrated is a degree of lawlessness, of uh, indiscretion with respect to um, uh, recognizing the authorities and what they stand for and what they uh, what they uh, can do. It is, it's 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 probably I don't know if it's unprecedented in Canada. It probably goes back to the Great Depression um, that we've had any kind of demonstration like that when when uh, when unemployed took rail cars to to uh, uh, toward Ottawa, the, the Winnipeg strike of 1919, very few examples of this kind of disorder in, in Canadian history. What would I do? You know, I, 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 first of all, I, I have the feeling that um, the federal government, which stayed on the sidelines for almost three weeks, um, saying things like this is for municipal authorities, this isn't our issue, um, began to realize that they were wearing it. And um, what often, you'll remember this, Scotty, when you're in government, sometimes people will say, you know, something must be done. This is something, therefore let us do it. Um, and uh, I have to say, I think that the, um, the Emergencies Act and um, other than the financial components of it, have not added any rules or laws that were not already extant, especially after the Premier of Ontario uh, declared an emergency a week ago. Um, our problem here is enforcement and a coherent plan across levels of government to apply enforcement in a measured way um, that ends this uh, ideally peacefully, but ends it. And uh, I think what we're now seeing is that the protesters are dug in. The Declaration of the Emergency Act has given them even less to lose than they had before. And uh, the policing job is going to be even uh, more difficult. On the financial penalty side, yeah, it's another way to apply pressure. Um, what has seemed to me to be the case, Scotty, is that uh, from uh, uh, from my perspective, the lack of uh, ability to um, to really uh, surround this uh, demonstration, to cut off its supply lines, and to disrupt its communications, um, is the core of the problem. And that I think if that required uh, I mean, uh, the former chief of the Ottawa Police Force said that required more, more resources, particularly one of the 800, 1,800 additional officers, which would triple the size of his force, by the way. Um, I think that uh, it was wrong for the federal government to rule out the use of the Canadian Armed Forces to encircle the demonstration, not to go in with, you know, and drag people out by their heels, but simply to, uh, to create um, you know, a one-way valve um, around that area. Uh, yes, you can leave freely, um, ideally with your truck, but if not, just leave. But you can't go in. You cannot go back in. Not with diesel canisters, not with food, not with firearms, nothing. Um, I think that because I know the geography pretty well, um, I think it's big enough now that it would require um in fact, hundreds of uh, officers to do that. But I think that's the, that's the key to it. And uh, I, I hope that eventually, as I say, having more laws is great, but <laughs> because you don't enforce them, they're not of much use. Mr. Manley, I, I want to uh, maybe take this in a slightly different direction, um, really about the kind of Canada-US connection. You mentioned Tom Ridge, and I, I first got to meet him when he was a member of Congress back in 1995. And we were talking a little bit about Canada, and he, um, he told me that, you know, he represented Erie, Pennsylvania, where you could get the CBC, uh, over the airwaves. Uh, and he, you know, had listened to it a lot. He had a real affinity for Canada, but our 
growth and the diversity of both societies, I find it's rarer and rarer to find senior Americans who have a lot of Canadian experience. Maybe they know someone. And a couple of things stand out. One was the um, the congressional debate about subsidizing U.S. consumers who wanted to buy 100% U.S.-made electric vehicles. Good luck finding one because <laughs> because we don't get the critical minerals from here, so we there is no such thing. But uh, then the surprise from members of Congress that there were um, Canadians upset that they were going to be on the outside looking in on that. You mentioned the PPE incident where, you know, Canadians quite shocked that uh, Peter Navarro and the Trump White House would suggest that. And and now, you know, in this crazy time, uh, flashback a year ago, I had Canadian friends who were stunned by the January 6, 2020, uh, you know, incidents here in Washington. And now, and now I'm talking to Americans who can't believe what they're seeing and hearing from Ottawa. Have we, have we lost our affinity for each other? Is there, is there a deeper problem of mutual uh, incomprehension or just mutual ignorance that that makes what you and Tom Ridge did so well harder today than it was maybe a generation ago? Well, I, I you know, I think the the complexity that has arisen through the division. Um, that we see in our societies uh, between social media and even and even broadcast media, um, where it's hard to get a common view of anything, including facts, makes it harder and harder to have uh, to share uh, the to the degree that we we did then. I we we knew our facts, Tom and I. We knew the degree to which our 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 businesses were were linked. Uh, we, you know, the auto sector had a long history of uh, of building and and even for tom it was there was a learning process uh, i remember he when he told me he had just he had just come from the cadillac plant in michigan where he saw in person how integrated the supply chains were because a chassis starting you know through the process uh you know, while it was having things done to it in in Dearborn, the seats were being made in Woodstock, Ontario. And when it got to the right point on the assembly line, the seats miraculously appeared and were put into place so, so that the degree of integration was clear. But but, I, you know, I, I think, you know, as as as. Senator Moynihan once said, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but everyone's not entitled to their own facts. And we're now living in a world where facts are uh, are more and more difficult to ascertain and to agree upon. So, yeah, but I think that's not a Canada-U.S. issue. That's a strain within our societies and within demo democratic societies on both sides of the border. You're seeing it in Europe as well. I, I think that's a very good point that it is bigger than North America. Um, I, I'm, I'm also wondering what you would recommend to us. I mean, we, we want to foster the kind of conversations, the kind of cooperation, whether it's dealing with the, the challenge of China. Uh, and I don't put that as a, you know, an enemy, but really there are a lot of challenges China poses these days to, on technology, economically, and of course, geopolitically. Uh, the challenge of Russia and Ukraine. This, this, it feels as though the world is becoming more dangerous, and nothing worries me more than the sense that maybe Canada and the U.S. don't face those things together. And during the the two Michaels uh, incidents with uh, Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver, it seemed like the U.S. and Canada were, at least to the outside observer, not that well coordinated on China. Now we're we're talking about what we're going to do on Ukraine, and it does seem to be uh, again a kind of uncoordinated effort across NATO. Um, are we talking enough? Do we need do we need to foster different kind of conversation? Is the problem on the Canadian side? Is the problem with U.S. leadership? How do you diagnose it? You've been around this relationship a long time. Well, one of the things that I that I, I always believed was um, that. Um, the challenge for the Canadian government and for any individual minister or prime minister is to make ourselves indispensable. When, when you look at the numbers, we're very dispensable. 
Um, but um, we could go places and do things that sometimes the U.S. couldn't go. We were invited into rooms into which the U.S. was not invited. Um, and, uh, you know, we, used to, we saw a play out certainly between Prime Minister Gretchen and President Clinton, that kind of utility that uh, President uh, Clinton appreciated because of the fact that Canada was seen differently. We, you know, we're not a superpower. We've never been a colonial power. We even speak French, you know, I mean, that's, uh, those are important differences. So I, I think there's been over the last number of years, there's been a, a, a dialing back of uh, seeing that as a mission for Canadian governments. Um, you know, withdrawing ambassadors, um, not visiting, uh, cold shouldering Russia. Uh, one incident during the Obama administration when the, the Arctic Council was to meet in Canada and the Canadians didn't want the Russian foreign minister invited, even though, uh, even though Secretary Kerry was looking for an opportunity to have a bilateral. Um, that's not the sort of thing that would have happened in the past. Um, and I think, you know, even in, even in my time, um, you know, post 9-11, um, I was invited to visit Tehran by the foreign minister. I called Colin Powell and he said, oh, please go. Please go see what you, you know, there's a, there must be a reason they're asking. I'd like to know. I'd be, he knew that they would find it easy to have the Canadian, but not easy to have the U.S. And it was a channel. Well, we haven't had an ambassador in Tehran for the last, I don't know how long, 15 years. That means that is cut off. Our, our former foreign minister, now deputy prime minister, is unable to visit Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and we were always a, a, a communications vehicle. We fed the Chinese in the 1950s uh, during the, um, the Great Leap Forward when many Chinese were starving and the Diefenbaker government uh, found a way to feed them. And that led a decade later to Canada being one of the earliest Western countries to recognize the Chinese. But we, you know, we, we, we found it was politically useful perhaps to be moralistic with uh, some of these governments rather than thinking, how can we be helpful to the Western alliance by maybe keeping a lower profile and doing some listening as well as talking? So I think that utility function is, uh, is something that we have lost sight of. And that's a Canadian fault, not a U.S. fault. Well, as you as as you talk about the world stage and, and these these big global issues, I can't I can't miss the moment minister to ask you about Afghanistan, because our listeners may or may not know that you were appointed actually by a conservative prime minister, you being a liberal uh, leader yourself, but to look at Afghanistan back uh, years ago and look at the role, Canada's role in it. So I wonder if you could just spend a moment or two talking to us about um, your thoughts at the time and then, you know, more recently with the, with the decision to pull out of Afghanistan that uh, the U.S., led, uh, what, what you think about it now? Well, um, first of all, when, when, um, when I was foreign minister, I was foreign minister at the time of 9-11, um, and that year the United Nations General Assembly was delayed from its usual dates in September into November. In November, uh, we had a dinner, I guess it was G8 at the time, of the G8 foreign ministers in a restaurant in New York City. Well, we were literally getting news of the Taliban pulling out of Afghanistan. And the mission that we, we launched post 9-11 was a mission to disable Al-Qaeda's ability to attack again. It was a mission to locate uh, Osama bin Laden for sure, but to disable Al-Qaeda. And all of a sudden, with the Taliban pullout, we had, uh, we, we had a state Central Asia that had no government. Um, Northern Alliance forces were coming down toward Kabul. Um, they were um, essentially drug lords who had armies, standing armies. 
and uh, how the mission was to evolve was the critical point. To this day, uh, I, you know, I can you can never test what ifs, but my my belief is that um, in the aftermath of the Taliban withdrawal, our Western decision to try to create a kind of Westernized democracy in Afghanistan was foolhardy and doomed to fail. Um, I think that had we focused instead on meeting the needs of the Afghan people, they needed food, they needed uh, medical supplies, they needed education, um, they needed uh, they needed order, and done it in a way that respected their traditions. We might have been able to leave without the degree of bloodshed and chaos that was there. We we never started out thinking our job was to extinguish the Taliban. The Taliban, besides the Taliban, were all in Pakistan, That's where they went to, and then they were able to to very effectively, uh, um, you know, feed the trouble. So I, I so I think the mistakes were made early on is the the, the way to answer the the question. I remember Richard Holbrook saying in a small group that I that I was in with him that he had the opportunity to interview a Taliban prisoner, and he uh, in one of the in one of the holding cells, and he asked him a bunch of questions, and the uh, the Taliban prisoner said, "Now I have a question for you." Through an interpreter, of course, he says, "How long are you going to stay? We know you're going to leave, so how long are you going to stay? Because we can wait." So. Uh, do I see it as uh, a, a sad period and and an exercise in some futility? Yes. Uh, do I think that the motives were right? I think they were. Um, you know, uh, educating women and girls and empowering them. But you know, truthfully, it took us 700 years from Magna Carta to give women the vote in in our countries, and we were taking a country that was essentially in, you know, in the Middle Ages, tried to make it a functioning democracy um, without literacy and with severe security threats. I think it was a fool's um, task. What I looked at in 2007 with my panel, and we were very conscious of it at the time, was uh, we were dealing with the burden of past decisions. Um, and we were looking at a mission that was UN authorized and led in large measure by NATO. Two of the multilateral institutions that Canada uh, is most um, supportive of. And it wasn't really an option at that point to say, well, you know, Canada should pull out. You, you asked about the final pull out. I mean, I think it was messy. I think it was, I think it was inevitable, but I think it, um, it probably could have been better planned and coordinated. I don't think you pull your military out until you've got the people out that supported you and helped you. And the deadlines were artificial and it led to chaos. It led to bloodshed. It led to, it led to, um, uh, you know, a really tragic set of circumstances for many, many Afghans. Um, and I, I, you know, I weep for them. Um, but you know, there is a there's a limit to what uh, the West was capable of doing, and it just took us a long time to reach that limit and figure it out. Mm -hmm. Mr. Manley, I'm going to tap another part of your uh, great experience, and that is talking a little bit about the economy. Um, you didn't deal with this when you were in the Ministry of Finance, but um, you're old enough like I am to remember inflation uh, in the late 70s and early 80s and high fuel prices and so on. And I think we, we started this with a discussion of what's going on on the border and the protests, but beneath a lot of those today are concerns about inflation, concerns about cost of living, and it's it it's definitely affecting both our governments, the U.S. and Canada, and, and uh, looking at where we are and the challenge of being competitive now, what concerns you most about our economic situation? And if you um, if you could target one or two things that we could do to uh, to get ourselves back on track and put us in a more competitive position, what might you uh, what might you flag? Well, I think I think the the key thing for us is going to be to make sure that we uh, 
we begin to uh, to build the investment side. Um, I know um, from my my uh, work on boards of, of uh, financial institutions that what we've seen both in Canada and the United States during COVID is quite a remarkable increase in bank deposits. Uh, people have been we with you know governments moved in as they needed to do to replace people's lost income. They more than replaced it, and saving rates have gone up uh, remarkably. Um, and I, you know, I think when you combine that with supply chain disruptions, you're bound to have inflation. So it's on it's on both sides. We've got the cash to spend, and we've got supplies being limited. Seeing it in housing markets, uh, first and foremost, but but in consumer goods and and uh, other uh, other other supplies as well. So I, you know, I think that what we what we what we need is investment, investment in building uh, building capacity in our economies to to uh, offset these the supply shortages. I think that we uh, we are going to look to the central banks to be very judicious. Uh, as they unroll some of the measures, particularly the quantitative easing uh, uh, shift, uh, that they not uh, provoke a recession, uh, that interest rates spike, and uh, and uh, that we see uh, growth just uh, freeze. Um, again, like with COVID, we're in circumstances we're really uncharted territory here looks a little bit like the early 70s when we had low growth and higher inflation. Uh, Canadian number this morning came in at 5%, uh, which is a stunningly big number for inflation in recent years. Um, uh, you know, when one of the great measures in 1982 uh, to reduce inflation was called six and five, we were targeting 6%, 5% in two years in succession. We haven't seen a 5% since then. It's always been lower than that. Um, and, uh, you know, lots of folks have taken on big mortgages. They're going to see them renewing at higher rates of interest. I think there are a lot of worries that I have here, Chris, that we could, uh, with uh, without a really, a really uh, uh, almost surgical display by the central banks, uh, cause things to tip the wrong way. I, well, I worry about that too, um, and I don't want to send our listeners, uh, you know, ready to jump off uh, a building. So I want to maybe point to something that, at least to my eye, seems like a good thing, but um, maybe really your opinion, I think, is probably more valid on this, which is, which is our trade relationship. And if we'd had this conversation three years ago, we might have been talking about the end of NAFTA because it seemed as though we were on a course to blowing the thing up that had actually benefited both countries quite a lot. Now we have the USMCA. Uh, we're you know one year in. Uh, we're making some progress. It's not the same. It, it it's a different kind of agreement in some ways, but but it's there. And the Biden administration does not have trade promotion authority to negotiate new trade agreements, but at least. For now, Canada and Mexico have that access. And of course, Canada also has the TPP or CPTPP with the Pacific Rim. Canada has trade relations with Europe, the CETA, but also a bridge to the UK uh, post-Brexit. So you have a lot more of these trade relations, but at the heart of it, you've got a, a some sense that your access to the US market is, is solid. Uh, even from Trump through the Biden administration. How do you feel about the situation in global trade? And do you think the USMCA really is a good uh, insurance policy for the Canadian economy? Or or do you regret that it, it kind of deviated from some of the what we'd had in the past, including with Canada-US free trade? What's your view? You know, at the end of the day, the USMCA uh, is a pretty important um renewal of NAFTA it, it it's NAFTA was uh, NAFTA as you say Chris worked well for both countries but it was old I mean it was you know came into a force in 1994 and and you know lots of things have changed so um, USMCA has, has updated it modernized it have dealt with a, a lot of uh, issues that were were waiting to be dealt with so I think it's I think it's a good thing. There are always going to be irritants. There are always going to be actions 
by governments that forget that they are governed by uh, a, a trade agreement. Uh, and that's not unique to Congress. Uh, I, you know, the recent decision by the panel under USMCA found in favor of the US and against Canada on dairy. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes uh, politicians and, and I, I'm, 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 you know, reco still recovering, I guess. Sometimes politicians <laughs> like to have courts or panels that in this case, tell them what to do so they can go to their constituency, whatever it is, and say, gee, I tried, you know, but that darn USMCA has, you know, making us do this. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I, I think we'll, you know, you know, we've been having issues around softwood lumber since George Washington was president. That's not going to change. Literally, yeah. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Since it was uh, the Commonwealth of Maine that was involved, you know, when it was uh, later became part of New Hampshire. So it's these things will happen uh, in a big, complex relationship. But fundamentally, it's sound. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an example. I've got two grandsons that are both U.S. citizens. Um, you know, those, those links and ties between Canada and the U.S. are unlike anything that, there is, that exists between any other two countries. And I, you know, I think at the, you know, the, there's always going to be, you know, what's his name, Tucker Carlson saying some bizarre, ludicrous thing, I, you know, but I think uh, m m that doesn't influence that many, uh, that many, that much thinking, I don't think, uh, uh, based on what I've seen, people, uh, people on both sides of the border uh, know what, you know, they, they've got a, a deep sense of what what our relationship is like. And I think that will continue on the economic side. Over to you, Scotty. Well, I mean, I think we've come full circle here. Uh, we're coming <laughs> to the end of this, but right back to Tucker Carlson, who, by the way, is egging on the protesters in Ottawa uh, <laughs> on Fox News every night. And uh, Minister, you said, you said, uh, you know, the geography pretty well in Ottawa. And just for the benefit of our listeners, I mean, you were born in Ottawa, you went to Bell High School. You went to Carleton University in Ottawa. You went to law school at University of Ottawa. You're a marathoner, so I have to believe you've run along every one of the streets there in the Glebe and downtown and everywhere. So um, so you know of what you speak when you say you know the geography. And uh, and knowing that, and, and, and I should say you represented Ottawa. Uh, Ottawa South is the name of the riding from 1988 to 2004. So absolutely, uh, you're pretty familiar with the geography. Classic Canadian understatement. Um, knowing that so we know you love your hometown you you were also foreign minister as we've discussed you've traveled the world extensively you've spent a lot of time in the u.s um if not ottawa what's your favorite place on earth and that's kind of where i want to leave this where if you if you didn't grow up in ottawa where would you like to be if you can wave a magic wand well you know there are um, there are there have been many times when i've thought about uh um, why I was in such a hurry to get to work and not benefit from the opportunities that I had to go study elsewhere. Um, uh, so places that I've been, let me, let me not, let me not just pick one, but places where I've spent a good deal of time include, include Boston, Washington, Seattle, where, uh, where I have those two grandsons. Uh, these are, are are great places, and 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 I love them. But I also, you know, in in the past, I'd have said that uh, my my three favorite cities in the world were London, New York, and Hong Kong, just because they are big. You know, I've now got uh, Hong Kong on kind of a watch list, right. and and I have to say, since Brexit. London's on a bit of a watch list too. And we haven't been able to go to New York during COVID, at least not the New York that I love. Um, but in a post-COVID world, I hope to be in New York as soon as I can. 
Well, that's a that's a great and we we're hopefully we're getting to post COVID or at least getting back to existing safely as we can with COVID. Uh, I want to I want to say thank you. And and, you know, we started this discussion talking about your relationship with the governor of Pennsylvania before he became Homeland, Tom Ridge, before he became Homeland Security Advisor and then Secretary. And relationships really are a special part of this Canada-U.S. relationship, you know, bilateral relationship. Personal relationships are important. Chris and I have been friends for uh, a couple of decades now. And and we all have a couple of mutual friends. You know, the ambassador that I worked for, Gordon Giffen, and you became good friends during uh, during his time in Ottawa, and I know that endures. Um, and also, just to complete the circle, Chris, a, a little-known fact for our listeners is Mr. Manley had a senior staffer, speaking of New York City, who lived in New York, also lived in Ottawa, Jennifer Sloan, who is now the chair of the board of the Canadian American Business Council. So just... So just so everybody knows that we all uh, we all love each other and we're all in this together. Uh, so listen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a tour de force. Uh, we love having you. We hope we hope we can have you back and and uh, really really delightful conversation. It was my pleasure. Great to see you both. That was amazing, Scotty. Uh, John Manley, someone who uh, who I've followed, and I know you've followed for a long time, but what eloquence to be able to hit so many notes uh, and really a tour de force, as I think you said. Well, absolutely. And when you introduced him, you said, you know, one of the most consequential leaders in 50 years. And I thought, only 50? Maybe one of the most consequential leaders in can- Canadian politics ever. You know, I guess history will be the judge of that. But he, you know, just for our listeners, we didn't we didn't prep him at all. We didn't say, here's what we want to ask you. We just literally sent him an email, I think yesterday, and said, we'd like to talk to you. And uh, luckily, in you know, he's stuck in his place in Ottawa and he had time. So anyway, what a, what a phenomenal conversation uh, across so many different topics. And uh, I look forward to having him back. I hope we I hope we have him back. Yeah, no staff, no handlers, and no BS. He went straight to the issues, and I I, I think that's something we need: refreshing candor in Canada-U.S. relations, underlying real compassion and friendship and commitment to this relationship. That's uh, that's the best mood on the street. So uh, always welcome on Canusa Street. That's right. We'll take it. Thanks, my friend. We'll see you next time. See you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.